Chapter 9, Part 1 of Sentimental Education. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sentimental Education by Gustave Flaubert. Chapter 9, A Friend of the Family, Part 1. Then began for Frederick an existence of misery. He became the parasite of the house. If anyone were indisposed, he called three times a day to know how the patient was, went to the piano tuners, contrived to do a thousand acts of kindness, and he endured with an air of contentment Mademoiselle Marthe's poutings and the caresses of little Eugène, who was always drawing his dirty hands over the young man's face. He was present at dinners, at which Monsieur and Madame, facing each other, did not exchange a word, unless it happened that Arnoux provoked his wife with the absurd remarks he made. When the meal was over, he would play about the room with his son, conceal himself behind the furniture, or carry the little boy on his back, walking about on all fours, like the Bernays. At last he would go out, and she would at once plunge into the eternal subject of complaint. Arnoux. It was not his misconduct that excited her indignation, but her pride appeared to be wounded, and she did not hide her repugnance towards this man, who showed an absence of delicacy, dignity, and honour. Or rather, he is mad, she said. Frederick artfully appealed to her to confide in him. Ere long, he knew all the details of her life. Her parents were people in a humble rank in life at Chartres. One day, Arnoux, while sketching on the bank of the river, at this period he believed himself to be a painter, saw her leaving the church and made her an offer of marriage. On account of his wealth, he was unhesitatingly accepted. Besides, he was desperately in love with her, she added. Good heavens, he loves me still, after his fashion. They spent the few months immediately after their marriage in travelling through Italy. Arnoux, in spite of his enthusiasm at the sight of the scenery and the masterpieces, did nothing but groan over the wine, and, to find some kind of amusement, organised picnics, along with some English people. The profit which he had made by reselling some pictures tempted him to take up the fine arts as a commercial speculation. Then he became infatuated about pottery. Just now, other branches of commerce attracted him, and, as he had become more and more vulgarised, he contracted coarse and extravagant habits. It was not so much for his vices she had to reproach him, as for his entire conduct. No change could be expected in him, and her unhappiness was irreparable. Frederick declared that his own life in the same way was a failure. He was still a young man, however. Why should he despair? And she gave him good advice. Work and marry. He answered her with bitter smiles. For in place of giving utterance to the real cause of his grief, he pretended that it was of a different character, sublime feeling and he assumed the part of an Antony to some extent, the man accursed by fate, language which did not, however, change very materially the complexion of his thoughts. For certain men, 
Action becomes more difficult as desire becomes stronger. They are embarrassed by self-distrust and terrified by the fear of making themselves disliked. Besides, deep attachments resemble virtuous women. They are afraid of being discovered and pass through life with downcast eyes. Though he was now better acquainted with Madame Arnoux, for that very reason, perhaps, he was still more faint-hearted than before. Each morning he swore in his own mind that he would take a bold course. He was prevented from doing so by an unconquerable feeling of bashfulness. And he had no example to guide him, inasmuch as she was different from other women. From the force of his dreams, he had placed her outside the ordinary pale of humanity. At her side, he felt himself of less importance in the world than the sprigs of silk that escaped from her scissors. Then he thought of some monstrous and absurd devices, such as surprises at night with narcotics and false keys. Anything appearing easier to him than to face her disdain. Besides, the children, the two servant-maids, and the relative position of the rooms caused insurmountable obstacles. So then he made up his mind to possess her himself alone, and to bring her to live with him, far away in the depths of some solitude. He even asked himself what lake would be blue enough, what seashore would be delightful enough for her, whether it would be in Spain, Switzerland or the East, and expressly fixing on days when she seemed more irritated than usual. He told her that it would be necessary for her to leave the house, to find out some ground to justify such a step, and that he saw no way out of it but a separation. However, for the sake of the children whom she loved, she would never resort to such an extreme course. So much virtue served to increase his respect for her. He spent each afternoon in recalling the visit he had paid the night before, and in longing for the evening to come in order that he might call again. When he did not dine with them, he posted himself about nine o'clock at the corner of the street and, as soon as Arnoux had slammed the hall door behind him, Frederick quickly ascended the two flights of stairs and asked the servant girl in an ingenuous fashion, Is monsieur in? Then he would exhibit surprise at finding that Arnoux was gone out. The latter frequently came back unexpectedly. Then Frederick had to accompany him to the little café in the Rue Saint-Anne, which Rochimbach now frequented. The citizen began by giving vent to some fresh grievance which he had against the crown. Then they would chat, pouring out friendly abuse on one another, for the earthenware manufacturer took Rochimbach for a thinker of a high order, and, vexed at seeing him neglecting so many chances of winning distinction, teased the citizen about his laziness. It seemed to Reginbach that Arnoux was a man full of heart and imagination, but decidedly of lax morals, and therefore he was quite unceremonious towards a personage he respected so little, refusing even to dine at his house on the ground that such formality was a bore. Sometimes, at the moment of parting, Arnoux would be seized with hunger, he found it necessary to order an omelette or some roasted apples, and, as there was never anything to eat in the establishment, 
He sent out for something. They waited. Reginbar did not leave, and ended by consenting in a grumbling fashion to have something himself. He was nevertheless gloomy, for he remained for hours seated before a half-filled glass. As Providence did not regulate things in harmony with his ideas, he was becoming a hypochondriac, no longer cared even to read the newspapers, and at the mere mention of England's name began to bellow with rage. On one occasion, referring to a waiter who attended on him carelessly, he exclaimed, "'Have we not enough of insults from the foreigner?' Except at these critical periods, he remained taciturn, contemplating an infallible stroke of business that would burst up the whole shop. While he was lost in these reflections, Arnoux, in a monotonous voice, and with a slight look of intoxication, related incredible anecdotes in which he always shone himself, owing to his assurance. And Frederick, this was, no doubt, due to some deep-rooted resemblances, felt more or less attracted towards him. He reproached himself for this weakness, believing that, on the contrary, he ought to hate this man. Arnoux, in Frederick's presence, complained of his wife's ill-temper, her obstinacy, her unjust accusations. She had not been like this in former days. "'If I were you,' said Frederick, "'I would make her an allowance and live alone.' Arnoux made no reply, and the next moment he began to sound her praises. She was good, devoted, intelligent, and virtuous. And, passing to her personal beauty, he made some revelations on the subject with the thoughtlessness of people who display their treasures at taverns. His equilibrium was disturbed by a catastrophe. He had been appointed one of the board of superintendents in a kaoling company, but placing reliance on everything that he was told, he had signed inaccurate reports and approved, without verification, of the annual inventories fraudulently prepared by the manager. The company had now failed, and Arnoux, being legally responsible, was, along with the others who were liable under the guarantee, condemned to pay damages, which meant a loss to him of 30,000 francs not to speak of the costs of the judgment. Frederick read the report of the case in a newspaper and at once hurried off to the Rue de Paradis. He was ushered into Madame's apartment. It was breakfast time. A round table close to the fire was covered with bowls of café au lait. Slippers trailed over the carpet and clothes over the armchairs. Arnoux was attired in trousers and a knitted vest, with his eyes bloodshot and his hair in disorder. Little Eugène was crying at the pain caused by an attack of mumps, while nibbling at a slice of bread and butter. His sister was eating quietly. Madame Arnoux, a little paler than usual, was attending on all three of them. "'Well,' said Arnoux, heaving a deep sigh, "'you know all about it?' And, as Frederick gave him a pitying look, "'There, you see?' I have been the victim of my own trustfulness. Then he relapsed into silence, and so great was his prostration that he pushed his breakfast away from him. Madame Arnoux raised her eyes with a shrug of the shoulders. He passed his hand across his forehead. After all, 
I am not guilty. I have nothing to reproach myself with. Tis a misfortune. It will be got over. I, and so much the worse, faith. He took a bite of cake, however, in obedience to his wife's entreaties. That evening, he wished that she should go and dine with him, alone, in a private room at the Maison d'Or. Madame Arnoux did not at all understand this emotional impulse, taking offence, in fact, at being treated as if she were a light woman. Arnoux, on the contrary, meant it as a proof of affection. Then, as he was beginning to feel dull, he went to pay the Maréchal a visit in order to amuse himself. Up to the present, he had been pardoned for many things owing to his reputation for good fellowship. His lawsuit placed him amongst men of bad character. No one visited his house. Frederick, however, considered that he was bound in honour to go there more frequently than ever. He hired a box at the Italian opera and brought them there with him every week. Meanwhile, the pair had reached that period in unsuitable unions when an invincible lassitude springs for concessions which people get into the habit of making and which render existence intolerable. Madame Arnoux restrained her pent-up feelings from breaking out. Arnoux became gloomy, and Frederick grew sad at witnessing the unhappiness of these two ill-fated beings. She had imposed on him the obligation since she had given him her confidence, of making enquiries as to the state of her husband's affairs. But shame prevented him from doing so. It was painful to him to reflect that he coveted the wife of this man at whose dinner table he constantly sat. Nevertheless, he continued his visits, excusing himself on the ground that he was bound to protect her, and that an occasion might present itself for being of service to her. Eight days after the ball, he had paid a visit to Monsieur D'Ambreuse. The financier had offered him twenty shares in a coal-mining speculation. Frederick did not go back there again. De Laurières had written letters to him, which he left unanswered. Pellerin had invited him to go and see the portrait. He always put it off. He gave way, however, to Sissy's persistent appeals to be introduced to Rosanette. She received him very nicely, but without springing on his neck, as she used to do formerly. His comrade was delighted at being received by a woman of easy virtue, and above all, at having a chat with an actor. Delmar was there when he called. A drama in which he appeared as a peasant lecturing Louis XIV and prophesying the events of 89 had made him so conspicuous that the same part was continually assigned to him and now his function consisted of attacks on the monarchs of all nations. As an English brewer, he invaded against Charles I. As a student at Salamanca, he cursed Philip II. Or, as a sensitive father, he expressed indignation against the pompadour. This was the most beautiful bit of acting. The brats of the street used to wait at the door leading to the side scenes in order to see him, and his biography sold between the acts, described him as taking care of his aged mother, reading the Bible, assisting the poor, in fact, under the aspect of a Saint Vincent de Paul, together with a dash of Brutus and Mirabeau. People spoke of him as 
Our Delmar. He had a mission. He became another Christ. All this had fascinated Rosanette, and she had got rid of Père Outre without caring one jot about consequences, as she was not of a covetous disposition. Arnoux, who knew her, had taken advantage of the state of affairs for some time past to spend very little money on her. Monsieur Roque had appeared on the scene, and all three of them carefully avoided anything like a candid explanation. Then, fancying that she had got rid of the other solely on his account, Arnoux increased her allowance, for she was living at a very expensive rate. She had even sold her cashmere in her anxiety to pay off her old debts, as she said, and he was continually giving her money, while she bewitched him and imposed upon him pitilessly. Therefore, bills and stamped paper reigned all over the house. Frederick felt that a crisis was approaching. One day, he called to see Madame Arnoux. She had gone out. Monsieur was at work, below stairs, in the shop. In fact, Arnoux, in the midst of his Japanese vases, was trying to take in a newly married pair, who happened to be well-to-do people from the provinces. He talked about wheel moulding and fine moulding, about spotted porcelain and glazed porcelain. The others, not wishing to appear utterly ignorant of the subject, listened with nods of approbation and made purchases. When the customers had gone out, he told Frederick that he had that very morning been engaged in a little altercation with his wife. In order to obviate any remarks about expense, he had declared that the Marachal was no longer his mistress. I even told her that she was yours. Frederick was annoyed at this, but to utter reproaches might only betray him. He faltered. Ah, you were in the wrong, greatly in the wrong. What does that signify? said Arnaud. Where is the disgrace of passing for her lover? I am really so myself. Would you not be flattered at being in that position? Had she spoken? Was this a hint? Frederick hastened to reply, No, not at all. On the contrary. Well, what then? Yes, tis true. It, it makes no difference so far as that's concerned. Arnoux next asked, And why don't you call there oftener? Frederick promised that he would make it his business to go there again. Ah, I forgot. You ought, when talking about Rosanette, to let out in some way to my wife that you are her lover. I can't suggest how you can best do it, but you'll find out that. I ask this of you as a special favour. Eh? The young man's only answer was an equivocal grimace. This calumny had undone him. He even called on her that evening and swore that Arnoux's accusation was false. Is that really so? He appeared to be speaking sincerely, and when she had taken a long breath of relief, she said to him, I believe you, with a beautiful smile. Then she hung down her head and, without looking at him, besides, nobody has any claim on you. So then she had divined nothing, and she despised him, seeing that she did not think he could love her well enough to remain faithful to her, Frederick, forgetting his overtures while with the other, looked on the permission accorded to him as an insult to himself. After this, 
she suggested that he ought now and then to pay Rosanette a visit, to get a little glimpse of what she was like. Arnaud presently made his appearance, and, five minutes later, wished to carry him off to Rosanette's abode. The situation was becoming intolerable. His attention was diverted by a letter from a notary, who was going to send him fifteen thousand francs the following day, and, in order to make up for his neglect of Delaurier, he went forthwith to tell him this good news. The advocate was lodging in the Rue des Trois-Maries, on the fifth floor, over a courtyard. His study, a little tiled apartment, chilly, and with a grey paper on the walls, had, as its principal decoration, a gold medal. The prize awarded him on the occasion of taking out his degree as a doctor of laws, which was fixed in an ebony frame near the mirror. A mahogany bookcase enclosed under its glass front a hundred volumes, more or less. The writing desk, covered with sheep leather, occupied the centre of the apartment. Four old armchairs, upholstered in green velvet, were placed in the corners, and a heap of shavings made a blaze in the fireplace, where there was always a bundle of sticks ready to be lighted as soon as he rang the bell. It was his consultation hour, and the advocate had on a white cravat. The announcement as to the 15,000 francs, he had, no doubt, given up all hope of getting the amount, made him chuckle with delight. That's right, old fellow, that's right, that, that's quite right. He threw some wood into the fire, sat down again, and immediately began talking about the journal. The first thing to do was to get rid of Husseini. I'm quite tired of that idiot. As for officially professing opinions, my own notion is that the most equitable and forcible position is to have no opinions at all. Frederick appeared astonished. Why, the thing is perfectly plain. It is time that politics should be dealt with scientifically. The old men of the 18th century began it, when Rousseau and the men of letters introduced into the political sphere philanthropy, poetry and other fudge, to the great delight of the Catholics. A natural alliance, however, since the modern reformers, I can prove it, all believe in revelation. But if you sing high masses for Poland, if in place of the god of the Dominicans, who was an executioner, you take the god of the Romanticists, who was an upholsterer, if, in fact, you have not a wider conception of the absolute than your ancestors, monarchy will penetrate underneath your republican forms, and your red cap will never be more than the headpiece of a priest. The only difference will be that the cell system will take the place of torture, the outrageous treatment of religion that of sacrilege, and the European concert that of the Holy Alliance. And in this beautiful order which we admire, composed of the wreckage of the followers of Louis the Fourteenth, the last remains of the Voltairians, with some imperial whitewash on top, and some fragments of the British Constitution, you will see the municipal councils trying to give annoyance to the mayor, the general councils to their prefect, the chambers to the king, the press to power, and the administration to everybody. But simple-minded people get enraptured about the civil code, a work fabricated, let them say what they like, in a mean and tyrannical spirit. For the legislator, in place of doing his duty to the state, which simply means to observe customs in a regular fashion, claims to model society like another Lycurgus. Why does the law impede fathers of families with regard to the making of wills? 
why does it place shackles on the compulsory sale of real estate why does it punish as a misdemeanor vagrancy which not ought even to be regarded as a technical contravention of the code and there are other things i know all about them and so i am going to write a little novel entitled the history of the idea of justice which will be amusing but i am infernally thirsty and you he leaned out through the window and called to the porter to go and fetch them two glasses of grog from the public house over the way to sum up i see three parties no three groups in none of which do i take the slightest interest those who have those who have nothing and those who are trying to have but all agree in their idiotic worship of authority for example mably recommends that the philosophers should be prevented from publishing their doctrines monsieur ronsky the geometrician describes the censorship as the critical expression of speculative spontaneity Père enfantin gives his blessing to the habsburgs for having passed a hand across the alps in order to keep italy down pierre leroux wishes people to be compelled to listen to an orator and louis blanc inclines towards a state religion so much rage for government have these vassals whom we call the people nevertheless there is not a single legitimate government in spite of their sempiternal principles but principle signifies origin it is always necessary to go back to a revolution to an act of violence to a transitory fact thus our principle is the national sovereignty embodied in the parliamentary form though the parliament does not assent to this but in what way could the sovereignty of the people be more sacred than the divine right they are both fictions enough of metaphysics no more phantoms there is no need of dogmas in order to get the streets swept it will be said that i am turning society upside down well after all where would be the harm of that it is indeed a nice thing this society of yours frederick could have given many answers but seeing that his theories were far less advanced than those of senecal he was full of indulgence toward delorier he contented himself with arguing that such a system would make them generally hated on the contrary as we should have given to each party a pledge of hatred against his neighbor all will reckon on us you are about to enter into it yourself and to furnish us with some transcendent criticism it was necessary to attack accepted ideas the academy the normal school the conservatoire the comedie francaise everything that resembled an institution it was in that way that they would give uniformity to the doctrines taught in their review then as soon as it had been thoroughly well established the journal would suddenly be converted into a daily publication thereupon they could find fault with individuals and they will respect us you may be sure delorier touched upon that old dream of his the position of editor-in-chief so that he might have the unutterable happiness of directing others of entirely cutting down their articles of ordering them to be written or declining them his eyes twinkled under his goggles he got into a state of excitement and drank a few glasses of brandy one after the other in an automatic fashion you'll have to stand me a dinner once a week that's indispensable 
even though you should have to squander half your income on it, people would feel pleasure in going to it. It would be a center for the others, a lever for yourself. And by manipulating public opinion at its two ends, literature and politics, you will see how, before six months have passed, we shall occupy the first rank in Paris. Frederick, as he listened to Delaurier, experienced a sensation of rejuvenescence, like a man who, after having been confined in a room for a long time, is suddenly transported into the open air. The enthusiasm of his friend had a contagious effect upon him. Yes, I have been an idler, an imbecile. You are right. All in good time, said Delaurier. I have found my Frederick again. And holding up his jaw with closed fingers, Ah, you have made me suffer. Never mind, I am fond of you all the same. They stood there, gazing into each other's faces, both deeply affected, and were on the point of embracing each other. A woman's cap appeared on the threshold of the anteroom. What brings you here? said Delaurier. It was Mademoiselle Clemence, his mistress. She replied that, as she happened to be passing, she could not resist the desire to go in and see him, and in order that they might have a little repast together, she had brought some cakes, which she laid on the table. Take care of my papers, said the advocate sharply. Besides, this is the third time that I have forbidden you to come at my consultation hours. She wished to embrace him. All right, go away, cut your stick. He repelled her. She heaved a great sigh. Ah, you are plaguing me again. It is because I love you. I don't ask you to love me, but to oblige me. This harsh remark stopped Clemence's tears. She took up her station before the window and remained there motionless, with her forehead against the pane. Her attitude and her silence had an irritating effect on Delaurier. When you have finished, you will order your carriage, will you not? She turned round with a start. You are sending me away? Exactly. She fixed on him her large blue eyes, no doubt as a last appeal, then drew the two ends of her tartan across each other, lingered for a minute or two, and went away. You ought to call her back, said Frederick. Come, now! And, as he wished to go out, Delaurier went into the kitchen, which also served as his dressing room. On the stone floor, beside a pair of boots, were to be seen the remains of a meagre breakfast, and a mattress with a cover lid was rolled up on the floor in a corner. "'This will show you,' said he, "'that I receive few marchionesses. "'Tis easy to get enough of them, I faith, and some others too. "'Those who cost nothing take up your time. "'Tis money under another form. "'Now, I'm not rich. "'And then they are all so silly, so silly.' Can you chat with a woman yourself? As they parted at the corner of the Pont Neuf, Delaurier said, It's agreed then. You'll bring the thing to me tomorrow as soon as you have it. Agreed, said Frederick. When he awoke next morning, he received through the post a cheque on the bank for 15,000 francs. This scrap of paper represented to him 15 big bags of money. And he said to himself that, with such a sum, he could, first of all, keep his carriage for three years instead of selling it, as he would soon be forced to do, or buy for himself two beautiful damaskine pieces of armour, which he had seen on the Quai Voltaire, then 
a quantity of other things, pictures, books, and what a quantity of bouquet of flowers, presents for Madame Arnoux. Anything, in short, would have been preferable to risking losing everything in that journal. Delaurier seemed to him presumptuous, his insensibility on the night before having chilled Frederick's affection for him. And the young man was indulging in these feelings of regret when he was quite surprised by the sudden appearance of Arnoux, who sat down heavily on the side of the bed, like a man overwhelmed with trouble. What is the matter now? I am ruined! He had to deposit that very day at the office of Maitre Beaumont, notary in the Rue Saint-Anne, 18,000 francs lent him by one Vanneroy. "'Tis an unaccountable disaster. I have, however, given him a mortgage which ought to keep him quiet, but he threatens me with a writ if it is not paid this afternoon, promptly. And what next? Oh, the next step is simple enough. He will take possession of my real estate. Once the thing is publicly announced, it means ruin to me, that's all. Ah, oh, if I could find anyone to advance me this cursed sum. He might take Vanneroy's place, and I should be saved. You don't chance to have it yourself? The check had remained on the night table near a book. Frederick took up a volume and placed it on the check, while he replied, Good heavens, my dear friend, no. But it was painful for him to say no to Arnoux. What, don't you know anyone who would? Nobody! And to think that in eight days I should be getting in money. There is owing to me probably 50,000 francs at the end of the month. Couldn't you ask some of the persons that owe you money to make you an advance? Ah, well, so I did. But have you any bills or promissory notes? Not one. What is to be done? said Frederick. That's what I'm asking myself, said Arnoux. Tisn't for myself, my God, but for my children and my poor wife. Then, letting each phrase fall from his lips in a broken fashion. In fact, I could rough it. I could pack off all I have and go and seek my fortune. I don't know where. Impossible, exclaimed Frederick. Arnoux replied with an air of calmness. How do you think I could live in Paris now? There was a long silence. Frederick broke it by saying, When could you pay back this money? Not that he had it, quite the contrary, but... There was nothing to prevent him from seeing some friends and making an application to them. And he rang for his servant to get himself dressed. Arnoux thanked him. The amount you want is 18,000 francs, isn't it? Oh, I could manage easily with 16,000, for I could make 2,500 out of it, or get 3,000 on my silver plate, if Vanneroy, meanwhile, would give me till tomorrow. And I repeat to you, you may inform the lender, give him a solemn undertaking, that in eight days, perhaps even in five or six, the money will be reimbursed. Besides, the mortgage will be security for it, so there is no risk, you understand? Frederick assured him that he thoroughly understood the state of affairs, and added that he was going out immediately. He would be sure on his return to bestow hearty maledictions on Delaurier, for he wished to keep his word, and in the meantime... To oblige Arnoux. Suppose I applied to Monsieur d'Ambreuse. But on what pretext could I ask for money? 
"'Tis I, on the contrary, that should give him some for the shares I took in his coal-mining company. Ah, let him go hang himself his shares. I'm really not liable for them. And Frederick applauded himself for his own independence, as if he had refused to do some service for Monsieur D'Ampreuse. Ah, well, he said to himself afterwards, since I'm going to meet with a loss in this way, for with fifteen thousand francs I might gain a hundred thousand. Such things sometimes happen on the boards. Well, then, since I am breaking my promise to one of them, am I not free? Besides, when Delorée might wait? No, no, that's wrong. Let us go there. He looked at his watch. Ah, there's no hurry. The bank does not close till five o'clock. And, at half-past four, when he had cashed the cheque, "'Tis useless now. I should not find him in. I'll go this evening." Thus giving himself the opportunity of changing his mind, for there always remain in the conscience some of those sophistries which we pour into it ourselves. It preserves the aftertaste of them, like some unwholesome liquor. He walked along the boulevards and dined alone at the restaurant. Then he listened to one act of a play at the vaudeville, in order to divert his thoughts. But his banknotes caused him as much embarrassment as if he had stolen them. He would not have been very sorry if he had lost them. When he reached home again, he found a letter containing these words. What news? My wife joins me, dear friend, in the hope, etc. Yours. And then there was a flourish after his signature. His wife. She appeals to me. At the same moment, Arnoux appeared, to have an answer as to whether he had been able to obtain the sum so sorely needed. "'Wait a moment, here it is,' said Frederick. And twenty-four hours later, he gave this reply to Delorier. "'I have no money.' The advocate came back three days, one after the other, and urged Frederick to write to the notary. He even offered to take a trip to Havre in connection with the matter. At the end of the week, Frederick timidly asked the worthy Arnoux for his fifteen thousand francs. Arnoux put it off till the following day, and then till the day after.' Frederick ventured out late at night, fearing lest Delorier might come on him by surprise. One evening, somebody knocked against him at the corner of the Madeleine. It was he. And Delorier accompanied Frederick as far as the door of a house in the Faubourg Poissonniere. Wait for me. He waited. At last, after three quarters of an hour, Frederick came out, accompanied by Arnoux, and made signs to him to have patience a little longer. The earthenware merchant and his companion went up the Rue de Hauteville arm in arm, and then turned down the Rue de Chaprol. The night was dark, with gusts of tepid wind. Arnoux walked on slowly, talking about the galleries of commerce, a succession of covered passages which would have led from the Boulevard Saint-Denis to the Châtelet, a marvellous speculation, into which he was very anxious to enter. And he stopped from time to time in order to have a look at the grisette faces in front of the shop windows, and then, raising his head again, resumed the thread of his discourse. Frederick heard Delorier's steps behind him like reproaches, like blows falling on his conscience. But he did not venture to claim his money, through a feeling of bashfulness, and also through a fear that it would be fruitless. The other was drawing nearer. He made up his mind to ask. Arnoux, in a very flippant tone, said that, as he had not got in his outstanding debts, he was really unable to pay back the 15,000 francs. You have no need of money, I fancy. At that moment, Delorier came up to Frederick and, taking him aside, Be honest. Have you got the amount? Yes or no? Well, then, no, said Frederick. 
I've lost it. Huh? And in what way? A uh, play? Delorière, without saying a single word in reply, made a very low bow and went away. Arnoux had taken advantage of the opportunity to light a cigar in a tobacconist's shop. When he came back, he wanted to know from Frederick, who was that young man? Oh, nobody, a friend. Then, three minutes later, in front of Rosanette's door, Come on up, said Arnoux. She'll be glad to see you. What a savage you are just now. A gas lamp, which was directly opposite, threw its light on him, and, with his cigar between his white teeth and his air of contentment, there was something intolerable about him. Ha! Now that I think of it, my notary has been at your place this morning about that mortgage registry business. Tis my wife reminded me about it. A wife with brains, returned Frederick automatically. I believe you. And once more, Arnoux began to sing his wife's praises. There was no one like her for spirit, tenderness and thrift. He added in a low tone, rolling his eyes about. And a woman with so many charms, too. Goodbye, said Frederick. Arnoux made a step closer to him. Hold on, why are you going? And, with his hand half stretched out towards Frederick, he stared at the young man, quite abashed by the look of anger in his face. Frederick repeated in a dry tone, Goodbye. He hurried down the Rue de Breda like a stone rolling headlong, raging against Arnoux, swearing in his own mind that he would never see the man again, nor her either. So broken-hearted and desolate did he feel. In place of the rupture which he had anticipated, here was the other, on the contrary, exhibiting towards her a most perfect attachment from the ends of her hair to the inmost depths of her soul. Frederick was exasperated by the vulgarity of this man. Everything, then, belonged to him. He would meet Arnaud again at his mistress's door, and the mortification of a rupture would be added to rage at his own powerlessness. Besides, he felt humiliated by the other's display of integrity in offering him guarantees for his money. He would have liked to strangle him, and over the pangs of disappointment floated in his conscience like a fog the sense of his baseness towards his friend. Rising tears nearly suffocated him. De Laurier descended the Rue des Martyrs, swearing aloud with indignation, for his project, like an obelisk that has fallen, now assumed extraordinary proportions. He considered himself robbed, as if he had suffered a great loss. His friendship for Frederick was dead, and he experienced a feeling of joy at it. It was a sort of compensation to him. A hatred of all rich people took possession of him. He leaned towards Senecal's opinions and resolved to make every effort to propagate them. All this time, Arnoux was comfortably seated in an easy chair near the fire, sipping his cup of tea with the Maréchal on his knees. Frederick did not go back there, and in order to distract his attention from his disastrous passion, he determined to write a history of the Renaissance. He piled up confusedly on his table the humanists, the philosophers and the poets, and he went to inspect some engravings of Mark Antony and tried to understand Machiavelli. Gradually, the serenity of intellectual work had a soothing effect upon him. While his mind was steeped in the personality of others, he lost sight of his own, which is the only way, perhaps, of getting rid of suffering. One day, while he was quietly taking notes, the door opened, and the manservant announced Madame Arnoux. It was she, indeed, and alone? Why, no, 
for she was holding little Eugène by the hand, followed by a nurse in a white apron. She sat down, and after a preliminary cough, it is a long time since you came to see us. As Frederick could think of no excuse at the moment, she added, it was delicacy on your part. He asked in return, delicacy about what? About what you have done for Arnoux, said she. Frederick made a significant gesture. What do I care about him, indeed? It was for your sake that I did it. She sent off the child to play with his nurse in the drawing-room. Two or three words passed between them as to their state of health. Then the conversation hung fire. She wore a brown silk gown, which had the colour of Spanish wine, with a paletot of black velvet bordered with sable. This fur made him yearn to pass his hand over it, and her headbands, so long and so exquisitely smooth, seemed to draw his lips towards them. But he was agitated by emotion, and, turning his eyes towards the door, "'Tis rather warm here!' Frederick understood what her discreet glance meant. "'Ah, excuse me, the two leaves of the door are merely drawn together.' "'Yes, that's true.' And she smiled as much as to say, "'I'm not a bit afraid.' He asked her presently what was the object of her visit. "'My husband,' she replied with an effort, "'has urged me to call on you, "'not venturing to take this step himself. "'And why? "'You know Monsieur d'Ambreuse, don't you? "'Yes, slightly. "'Ah, slightly.' "'She relapsed into silence. "'No matter. "'Finish what you were going to say.' "'Thereupon she told him that, two days before,' Arnoux had found himself unable to meet four bills of a thousand francs made payable at the banker's order and with his signature attached to them. She felt sorry for having compromised her children's fortune. But anything was preferable to dishonour, and if Monsieur d'Ambreuse stopped the proceedings, they would certainly pay him soon, for she was going to sell a little house which she had at Chartres. Poor woman, murmured Frederick. I will go. Rely on me. Thanks and she rose to go. Oh, there is nothing to hurry you yet. She remained standing, examining the trophy of Mongolian arrows suspended from the ceiling, the bookcase, the bindings, all the utensils for writing. She lifted up the bronze bowl which held his pens. Her feet rested on different portions of the carpet. She had visited Frederick several times before, but always accompanied by Arnoux. They were now alone together, alone in his own house. It was an extraordinary event, almost a successful issue of his love. She wished to see his little garden. He offered her his arm to show her his property. Thirty feet of ground, enclosed by some houses, adorned with shrubs at the corners and flower borders in the middle. The early days of April had arrived. The leaves of the lilacs were already showing their borders of green. A breath of pure air was diffused around, and the little birds chirped, their song alternating with the distant sound that came from a coachmaker's forge. Frederick went to look for a fire shovel, and while they walked on side by side, the child kept making sun pies in the walk. Madame Arnoux did not believe that, as he grew older, he would have a great imagination, but... He had a winning disposition. His sister, on the other hand, possessed a caustic humour that sometimes wounded her. That will change, said Frederick. We must never despair. She returned, 
we must never despair. This automatic repetition of the phrase he had used appeared to him a sort of encouragement. He plucked a rose, the only one in the garden. Do you remember a certain bouquet of roses one evening in a carriage? She coloured a little, and with an air of bantering pity, Ah, I was very young then. And this one, went on Frederick in a low tone, will it be the same way with it? She replied while turning about the stem between her fingers like the thread of a spindle. No, I will preserve it. She called over the nurse, who took the child in her arms, and then, on the threshold of the door in the street, Madame Arnoux inhaled the odour of the flower, leaning her head on her shoulder with a look as sweet as a kiss. When he had gone up to his study, he gazed at the armchair in which she had sat, and every object which she had touched. Some portion of her was diffused around him. The caress of her presence lingered there still. So, then, she came here, said he to himself, and his soul was bathed in the waves of infinite tenderness. End of chapter 9, part 1. Recording by Kate M.